Episode four in the Green River Killer podcast. Series. This, this is my dark hour. Oh, we have a name. <laughs> we have Morgan a name. Carrie. Oh man, yeah, yeah. My so we're official now. We've we're got official. a name. Just saying. Which is named after a Steve Miller song that I've never heard. Yeah, but we can just forget that. Can we listen to it? Yeah, it's it's, it's just pure guitar. Oh, There's really? No words even. Okay, so that's, that's probably, probably better. For, it's for the better. Yeah. Um, so in this episode, we're going to focus on the investigation slash Dave Reichert's stupid. We struggled, I think, a little bit getting the momentum to do this episode. Would you agree? Yeah. On that? I felt a little, a little overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. The other ones, I think, had a pretty clear narrative structure. And this one, is it good? The wine? The wine is so good. Okay, sweet. Let's see what it It's looks. called Phantom. Phantom. I got it for Thanksgiving and then did not need it, so we're drinking it now. Fuck yeah, we're going to drink the whole damn thing. That's cool. All right, let me take it's a sip. It's good. It's really good. Um, anyway, but I agree. I think it's just because there's so many details. This is a 20-year-long investigation. Yeah. That there was a lot, there was a lot to handle. These work better if it's more like a story, and I, I think I struggled finding... The story, the narrative through line. Through you want to know? You want to know what the narrative is? Dave Riker. Dave Riker fucked everything up. <laughs> so there that's the story that that's the closest thing to the story that I found, which we will definitely talk about today. Well, Dave Riker's a major player up to the point where Tom Jensen takes over being the only player. So And I mean, can we talk about that for a second? Because okay, so the investigation starts in eighty two. Mm-hmm. Uh it ends in two thousand one. Yes. Well, um, no, it doesn't even end. It ends in like two thousand and three. Okay, right. But he's they, caught they in two thousand one. Yeah. They officially catch him in two thousand one. Uh, Tom Jensen was pretty much the only one from 89 on. Yes. So he really was the leader of this whole thing. But yet Dave Reichert insists on calling himself the yes. lead detective. Yes. So, okay. Yes. So let's, let's backtrack a little. So we talked, I think we did talk about the first five victims. We did. The we ones, did. the ones found in the river mm-hmm. the, and how that was the beginning of the investigation. Yep. And then how at that point... There were no, pretty much no more bodies found for a while. So people were going missing, but there was not, there were not bodies being found. And so there was, I wouldn't say there was much of an active investigation happening or there was, but it was a, it was a sort of tepid, I think, investigation happening Mm -hmm. after those first five victims. So maybe let's start there. So sort of the fall of 82. Fall of 82. So we have five victims in the river. Yep. So the that brings us to the first major suspect. At first, they were really, I mean, living on anything that they could and trying to rely on tips from 
prostitutes and like, pimps and and the idea of the pimp war the pimp war which yes. by the way i just pimp revisited <laughs> the search for the green river killer and in this book it makes it seem like dave reichert was the person who came up with the idea <laughs> of the pimp war you know that it was you know it was it's like totally you, dave you know it was fucking dave reichert um, so that's pretty funny but in, anyway in my page that like didn't print off for some reason that i'm actually kind of feeling like i'm gonna have a diarrhea attack about um <laughs> There's a really great quote that reminded me of Pimp War because I know Dave Reichert coined that term. It's a, it's called a bustling sex bazaar. Bustling sex bazaar. Bustling sex bazaar. So, That's just how he described, I think, the strip. As a bustling... A bustling sex bazaar. <laughs> All right. So one of the things I've been doing is coming up with names for each episode of the podcast. So the a name Sweet. of this one is going to be Bustling Sex Bazaar. Yes. I think that's a great With Dave name. Riker. Like somehow it's going to be all you tied together. You Dave Riker would love to go to a bustling sex bazaar oh, too. He's got lust in his motherfucking heart. Oh you know he does. He definitely does. Okay. We're going to talk about that later. Okay. So, anyway. So August of 82... They, okay, they're looking for someone who is interested in the murders, okay? So they're looking through all these tips, and they find this guy, this cab driver, who is really insistent that another cab driver named Dan Smith is the Green River Killer. And they're like, oh, weird, okay, so they check out Dan Smith. Dan Smith takes a a polygraph and totally cleared. And then they're like, wait a minute, this other guy his name is Melvin Foster, ends up, like, coming back and being like, no, this dude is the Green River Killer. Let me, like, outline my argument and provide you with evidence. And they're like, okay, this guy's a little fucking too interested in the Green River Killer crimes. So this is how they get on... That's how, This is how Melvin Foster becomes their first suspect and gets on their radar. He's a cab driver. He mm-hmm. lives with his dad yes. down in Lacey. Which is by our state's beautiful capital. And but quite quite really far, away. far away. Yeah. And he's middle-aged. He's like 44. And he's a fucking loser. And okay. it's really, this whole thing is just pathetic. So this is how I describe him um, in my notes. He looks like, <laughs> like an older, drugged out, really skinny greaser from The Outsiders who also likes to have sex with kids. Uh, that pretty much sums up Melvin Foster. Like, he's a total weirdo. He has a hugely inflated ego. Like, this guy thinks he's, like, the savior to all mankind. But he's fucking weird. I saw him uh, in a recent Green River Killer. No, no, not in I thought you meant in real life. I was like, oh my god. Oh, I think I would recognize him, which is fucked up. (laughs) But I was watching a somewhat new Green River Killer documentary, and he was interviewed. This is... Of course he was. 30... More than 30 years later. And he's happy, happy to be interviewed. This dude, seriously, has such a boner for media attention. Oh my god, it's ridiculous. So, yeah, so they latch onto this guy as, as... being the Green River Killer, Dave Riker in particular, it hones in on him as like, that's it, Dave, right. Melvin Foster is our guy. And there's a total reason for that. So this is, he doesn't come out and say it, obviously, but this is my theory. Okay, they bring Melvin Foster in, he takes a lie detector, totally fails it. So they say, okay, we want to check your house. Melvin Foster's like, sure, come on down. They come down, they like take a bunch of evidence. There's a really interesting anecdote in... The book that I read this week, which I fucking took one for the team. You did. Okay. You did. It's called Chasing, Chasing the, the Devil. Devil. 
by Sheriff Dave Reichert. And he talks about Melvin Foster's little kid following him around with a tape recorder, following everyone around with a tape recorder, and, like, narrating what they're doing the whole time, which is so... Wait, Melvin Foster had a kid? Yes! Which, oh, that was the part that I was I did know that. By. Oh, God. I know. And he'd like, been married, oh, like, five times. Yikes. Oh, God. Yes. Okay, so they go down there, they collect all this evidence, uh, he gives, like, him, them, his fluids... They, he does all that, which sounds really disgusting. I would not want to come in contact with Melvin Foster's fluids. No. <laughs> I'm just saying. But they didn't find much. And I guess while they were driving him back, they were they decided we're going to bring him in on these, like, traffic violations. Like, things he had, like, a warrant out or whatever for these traffic violations. He is talking to them and admitting, oh, yeah, I knew Deb Bonner. Oh, yeah, I knew Marsha Chapman. Oh, yeah. And is, like acknowledging that he knows all of the Green River Killer now, victims. And that's really why he piques our interest so much originally. Do you think he was telling the truth? Do you think he actually knew these people or just said he did? No, I think he said he did. I mean, maybe he knew some of them because he did apparently, so this is fucked up. This is a fucked up thing about Melvin Foster also. He would often trade cab rides for sex Mm -hmm. with underage prostitutes. Such a great guy. So (laughs) he probably had come into contact with some of them at some point, and, you know, they, like, maybe looked familiar for whatever reason. But I doubt that he knew all of them. I think he purposely inserted himself in this investigation for whatever reason. I think he maybe just wanted attention and... Yeah, I mean, so hard to get. That's it. the weird thing about this case is it seems to really attract pathetic, marginal people. Yeah, including the killer. I mean, yeah. and that's was just it's yeah. just like pathetic, marginal people coming together, yes. joining hands in this case because right. no one is slick, no one is a Ted Bundy, no one is smart, no one has anything interesting to <laughs> offer. It's just these really lame people like coming. Just yeah. Yeah. Because I I don't know. I have a hard time believing that a cab driver would know his, you know, passenger so well that he would know their name. He knows what they look like. And he'd be able to say, oh, my God, totally. I know Deborah Bonner. I know her. It's like, no, I don't think so. He did. So he, like I said, he kind of saw himself as like a savior of these like young street kids. And apparently he had like some of them living with him at a point. Oh, God. He went on a vacation with some of them down to California, which is also really weird. So he did have like unnatural contacts with these young women. Although... He does have standards. He said anyone who would sleep with a 14-year-old is totally sick. But 15. So, 15, fair okay. Yep, yep, that's Melvin. <laughs> the reason why I think Dave Reichert totally had just like this like ugh, throbbing constant hard-on for Melvin Foster is that Melvin Foster, after they were unable to find anything on him and um, were unable to make anything stick despite his failed polygraphs, um, Melvin Foster made them all look like fucking idiots. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Well, I don't. I don't know exactly where you're going with that. Okay. I mean, where I would go is the press knew about this, and mm-hmm. I don't know if it's because the cops went to the press or Melvin Foster went to the press or both, and maybe yeah. both, and made a big production of the fact that he had been taken in for questioning, that he was, of course, completely innocent. 
And of course, he was proven to be right because what ended up happening, they couldn't get anything on him, and they ended up putting him under surveillance for a long <laughs> fucking time. I mean, years. Right. I think he was under surveillance. Mm-hmm. I think Dave Riker personally would drive down to Lacey and like check out his house for years afterwards, despite the fact that there were, I mean, dozens of other women who were taken after he was under surveillance, and right. so it was pretty obvious it wasn't him. Oh, but Dave Riker will not admit to not that in this no book. no. No, no, no. He pretty much makes it clear that Melvin Foster was, like, off of his list early on. Which is not true. It's not true at all. It's not true at all. And so they they totally fixated on this guy, Dave Mm -hmm. Reichert, in particular, who was, as far as he's concerned, the lead detective in the case and was convinced that this guy Mm -hmm. was the Green River Killer. And I don't know if that was total misplaced faith in the polygraph. Because it really does seem like in this period of time, they took that as the word of God. It was like, oh, you failed a polygraph, you're fucking guilty. And there were some other things, too. Apparently his hair was similar to some of the hairs that they found Mm. at some of the, well, the crime scene. At that point, they only had the river victims. And then also he had women's underwear in his cab. Yeah, but... I know. Yeah, I I I don't... mm, That's that's pretty weak. So what he ends up doing, and this is like this media thing where he made them look like total idiots, was while they had him under surveillance, he would do things like completely aware that people were after him. Mm-hmm. So he would lead them on these crazy chases. Oh, yeah, that's right. And then he would also chase them. Like the Day Record talks about this one part where one of the guys on patrols like, Melvin's chasing me, uh, just like radios in. And then he would... he. This all culminated where he had them chase him to a parking lot where he had called ahead and had a TV news crew there. And so the TV news crew completely confronted this police officer that was doing surveillance on Melvin Foster. And when the media caught wind of this, like Melvin Foster would go out and I mean, he was like giving interviews left and right, talking about how completely inept they were and just made them look like fucking idiots constantly. And so I think that, like, one of the things that I realized from this book is that Reichert has such a frail ego. I mean, he's constantly trying to, like, bolster his ego. And I think this really, really fucked him up. And so he was determined to find anything he could on Melvin Foster. And the fact that he was doing that, Melvin Foster, shows that he was probably smarter than Dave Riker. Right. Dave Riker has never struck me as particularly intelligent. No. And at least Melvin Foster had a sense of humor. Right. About this kind of stuff. Yeah. And, yeah. And I can... Dave Riker was definitely somebody who was out for revenge. Right. And was definitely on a sort of moral crusade. And so all of these people that he saw as being... Bad people. And I mean, and Melvin Foster does sound like he was sort of... He's a, a shit. He man. was a creeper, yeah. for sure. I'm not saying he was a good guy, but if you're a fucking cop, I don't know how many good people you're going to encounter. And like so, none. N- no, that's not really <laughs> what it's about. And so Dave Riker just, he would get up on his fucking high horse about all of these people that he came into contact with and then just kind of go for them. Right. Regardless of whether there was any evidence (laughs) or not. So anyway, the moral of this story is don't fucking chase people just because they're your favorites in the case. Like, that makes that doesn't make any fucking sense. Well, and Dave Riker admits, so he says, I'm a very competitive person, and it was hard to keep telling people that the circle around Melvin Foster still wasn't closed. So it became this personal thing, and, and it was made even more personal because apparently okay so barbara kubik patton who, who we, we mentioned talk, no we haven't mentioned her we haven't mentioned her no uh-uh. oh, we didn't talk about tina thompson 
And we, we didn't. No. Okay, so T. Okay, sorry. Barbara Patton. Kubik. Kubik hyphen Patton. Excuse me. <laughs> was a psychic who regularly inserted herself into this investigation. And like Anne Rule made her seem like she was just like a real doy doy. And, and the cops make it seem that way. Like no one likes her. And Dave Riker especially doesn't like her because apparently she started talking with Melvin Foster. They like kind of became friends a they little bit. They would hang out. I know. In... Ew. And I remember, because Annual talks about this, and the place called the Ebb Tide, E-B-B Tide. Oh, I've heard of that. I don't think it's still there, but it was in Kent on Meeker Street. Anyway, they would go hang out there together and talk about the case. Okay, so during these talks, apparently, Barbara Kubik Patton gave Melvin Dave Record's address. <laughs> <laughs> so Dave Record was really pissed off at Barbara. Oh, my Very God. Very upset. Like, like we said, losers and weirdos were attracted <laughs> to this case. But Barbara Kubik Batten is interesting because she found a fucking body. She did with her kids with her. With her kids. So that's crazy. And we didn't talk about that because there were too many victims to talk about. But she, I don't even know how she ended up doing this, but she was out with her kids going to get ice cream or something. She sees a state trooper or something. Like, parked on the side of the road. This was out on 90, I think, or over by... Yeah, which, why was she getting ice cream out there? That's like a... It's a remote area. Well, she's a psychic. She is a psychic. <laughs> she knew there was something was up. And she's out there, and I think maybe she talked to the state trooper and somehow figured out that there was... That they were investigating a Green River Killer body right. recovery. Yep. She went down to the next turnout on the road, walked into the woods, and found a fucking body. Yep. Another one. Under a tarp. And it was the body of Tina Marie Thompson. Tina Marie Thompson, that's right. And her kids were with her, which is horrifying. She just totally fucked up her kids. I know. Life. Oh, hey just, kids. Just cause. Let's go look at this corpse. So yeah, so yeah, Barbara Kubik Patton, another just random person in this case, friends with Melvin Foster. Yeah. So yeah, Melvin Foster, not guilty. Not, not guilty, guilty and at was all. and was harassed by the police for years. I think he was. I mean, I think he asked for it a lot too. He did. He did things that were like deliberately provocative. Yeah, he he was provoking them, and he really he was he set out to make them look like assholes, which but he achieved. The whole point of being a fucking police officer is that you're not supposed to go for that kind of stuff. Right. I mean, because I'm sure that happens all the time. Is right. people do you know, just fucked up shit to get your goat. Right. And you know, that's the whole point. You're supposed to be like, no, I'm above that. And they just didn't do that at all. Yeah, like, what the fuck is that about, like, people calling and being like, I'm the killer. And then you're, oh then God. they're not the killer. Like, why would you do that? You know about the Jack the Ripper thing, right? How, like, they got dozens, if not hundreds, of letters from Jack the Ripper. They're all fake. Or probably oh at God. least at least most of them are fake, and they're all from different people. And so that oh was a thing God. even back then that they people would write these fake letters as Jack the Ripper, and I don't know why. It was just that's so weird to me. I don't know, but people do, do that shit. Like that makes no sense to me. Why would you? Why would you do that? I don't know. Anyone does any of this shit? I don't know. But I feel like that's what I think about with Melvin Foster too. It's like. Like, when he says the things that he says, I'm like, why would you do that? Why would you say that? Because that's just going to make you look hella guilty. Maybe that's the rush of being accused of something or almost being, you know, convicted of something you didn't do. Oh my God, that's like, maybe there's, my maybe there's something nightmare. very enticing about that. Who the fuck no. knows? <laughs> I'm so scared. You, don't, you need to oh, put that somewhere. Thank, thank you. We need to talk about the fact that 
so okay, so Love and Foster, he's not guilty. I don't, and I don't even know when that ended. But also, I early eighty three or late eighty two, John Douglas shows up. Yeah, FBI profiler. When was that? So this was in. Um, I think this was in eighty two still because it was before Bob Keppel. Yeah. Okay, so not long after this, um, John Douglas, who's the FBI profiler, and they just made that show about him, Mindhunter. Did you watch that? <gasps> oh my god, that's him? That's John Douglas, yeah. Oh my god, crazy. And actually, did you watch the whole series? No. I didn't like it that much. I hate the stupid relationship with the girl. I do too, and David Fincher, I don't know if he directed all of them, but he's intimately involved in the series, and I really like David Fincher. Me too! I thought the series was very lackluster, just by the way. Okay. There was a few good episodes, but for the most part, I wasn't into it. That's anyway, good to know. Anyway. John Douglas is also the basis for, oh, fuck, Silence of the Lambs, um, Crawford. Really? So, yeah. Wow, so he's kind of like a big wig. He's kind of famous. So here's the thing, though. Profiling of serial killers, I think, is total bullshit. Yeah. I think it is a bullshit thing. Yeah. So anyway, he shows up and does a profile. Which, I have at least part of it here. Where do I put it? And I will not read it because it's really long. But it's so vague, it's insane. It's like, oh, it's a white male. Mid-20s to (laughs) mid-30s. You know, maybe ex-military. Maybe is into the outdoors. You know, I mean, it was just... That's literally every man in Washington. Pretty much. (laughs) Probably drinks, probably smokes. Maybe has issues with women. I'm like, you think? (laughs) And that's kind of it. Like, there's nothing more specific than yeah. that, except for, like, maybe he probably lives around here. Right. Wow. Like, I could have fucking Thanks done Trump that. Thanks, Douglas. <laughs> so, anyway, like, this guy who's super famous and is the basis for all kinds of pop culture things, I don't get it. I don't fucking get it. I know, I'm sure that he did more in his life than just profiling, but... I just think it's a it's like it's like handwriting analysis. I think it's a complete bullshit thing. Yeah. I don't think you can I don't think it works that way. I don't yeah. think you can start with a crime and then build back to the person. Totally. So and I'm probably gonna end up on a list by saying this. But like I think the more and more research that I've done in this case, the like more bullshit that I think the fucking FBI is. Honestly, and there's things that we'll talk about in later episodes with, like, when they were get into the psyche of the Green River Killer, where things are, like, totally planted. I mean, it's it's not viable. No, and So it kind of no. makes me just go, like, wow, all of this is stupid. I think a lot of our ideas and the FBI's ideas about serial killers were very much rooted in the serial killers that they had experienced up until this time period, and we're just going to tell you they were fucking wrong. Yeah. I mean, some of the stuff in the John Douglas stuff is, or profile is true, but their whole idea about, you know, the criminal mastermind of the serial killer and this, like, evil genius. Right, I, like, it's Bundy. He's, like, describing yeah. Bundy. Bundy is the template for almost all right. serial killers, right. even now, yeah. I think, and it's not fucking true. Yeah. It's just not. Just like that idea that all serial killers are white, that's not fucking true. Right. Or all serial killers are men, that's not fucking true. Yeah. And I got this textbook, actually, about serial killers. So it's very, it's not interesting reading necessarily because the writing is very bland. But they talk a lot about that. There's whole chapters on black serial killers and how really there are absolutely black serial killers Mm -hmm. just as many proportionally to the black population as there are white serial killers. Mm. But they're ignored 
because of the media, not because they don't exist. Right. And so that's really what the issue is, is that for whatever reason, we don't want to see black serial killers. Right. We've and created this idea of, like, what a serial killer yeah. is. Yeah. Like this super intelligent white man who has these specific traumas in his childhood and, like, has all these crafty ways of getting around yeah. investigations. And, and you know what's funny is those ideas, I think, existed before Ted Bundy, but when Ted Bundy came along, everyone was like, like oh, oh, bingo! There he is. We've been waiting for you. Seriously. And maybe we should do a Ted Bundy podcast just to delve into that whole idea about our, I, I really do think, cultural obsession, not with Ted Bundy specifically, but but right. his type of serial killer. Right. I mean, Hannibal Lecter... What, I mean, was not based on Ted Bundy, really. But I think really, in terms of just his personality and the way he comes across, right, is closest very, to Ted like, Bundy. Very charismatic and cultured and intelligent. And, yeah. You know, I guess it's Well-educated, like yeah. sophisticated, can attract women. I mean, all the things that, seriously, like 95% of serial killers are Aren't. not at all. We're going to have to examine that, I think, in a later episode. Yeah. That would be really interesting. Sorry, we went way off track here. But Ted Bundy that is, is important. really interesting, yeah. But he's important in this case because he, is important he case. was very, he was on everybody's mind right. because he he had just been fucking yep. arrested, I yep. think, in this, or in the last couple of years yep. before this happened. And they had, had not been caught in Washington, so he had began his serial killer career in Washington and then was not caught and moved. Right. And like this, they kind of knew who he was, and then he left before they could get him. Right. And so I think that there was this sort of sense of, like, shit, we let that one get away. We can't do that again. Right. Well, and speaking of, too, so Bob Keppel, the guy who was Robert Keppel. Well, what was he in this? Now he's, like, a writer, college professor. Right. I, what was he in this time period? That's what I'm wondering. I don't, I, I'm not sure if he was, like, a... He was a cop, though. But they brought him in... So in 83, they brought him in. There was a new sheriff, and he wanted a review. Comes into this new this new post and is like, we need to have a review of what's going on. Because already people were like, they're spending a lot of money and not, get, not getting not a lot of traction. We're not finding anybody. Right. So they bring in Bob Keppel, who had worked with Bundy previously. Well, he was one of the detectives on the Bundy case, right. if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. I mean, so he, yeah, he knew all about the, the he Bundy like case. Intimate, he was like intimate knowledge of it. So they bring in Bob Keppel, and this is really great because Dave Riker immediately starts comparing penises with um, Bob Keppel. He's very upset that Bob Keppel's here. And this is a quote that I want to share because I thought it was just super rich. No two detectives do the job the same way, and it's only natural to believe that your own methods are best. As much as I respected Bob, he possessed a strong ego, and it was possible that his analysis would be affected by a desire to demonstrate superiority. Uh-huh. It's like it's like they're uh-huh. like two dogs. Like which dog is going to get the other one on its back? And this is, I mean, this is Dave Riker writing this. So in the search for the Green River Killer, they they talk about this exact same thing that Bob Keppel has brought in to go over what they had done so far in the investigation, and he. Rips oh, this fucking he just investigation tore them apart. apart. He's like, "Why aren't you talking to these people? Why haven't you done this? Why aren't you connecting these dots?" And on and on and on and like, on. Like you're and doing on. a really bad job uh, collecting evidence. You need to do this. You need to do this. And you can imagine, Dave Reichert was not very happy with that. No. And instead of, I mean, I guess it probably did change things a little bit. My sense is instead of actually being like, "Oh shit," like we need to go back and like re, you know, interview people. Mm-hmm. 
I guess you can't recollect evidence, but go back and fix some of the mistakes that we made. Instead, it was like, yeah. Right. <laughs> He's mean. We did a bad <laughs> job. He makes us feel shitty. And it's just embarrassing. Because he was, I think he, from what I can tell, he was right. Well, I mean, and another thing that he picked up on, and I think this is like, this is my major problem with the whole thing, is that I don't believe that Dave Riker, I don't know about the other investigators because Dave Riker, I think, is the most vocal. Oh, God. But yeah. I do not believe that he approached the. I, I mean, I think when he thought of the prostitutes, like these victims, he thought of these, like, undesirables in society. I mean, like, he thought of them as less than. And so and Bob Keppel pulled this out yeah, through this report. Keppel found that the task force had, in, these are his words, indifference, impatience, or a negative attitude towards some of the witnesses, which are prostitutes and pimps. Uh, he went on to say that this problem reflects more on the interviewer than upon the cultural background of the person interviewed. One has to work harder at interviewing these types of witnesses. So he called them out and, and noticed that like right off the bat. And Dave Reichert, of course, insists, like, oh, we cared about these women, like, la, 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 we were doing our best. But, I, I mean, people are, like, already calling them out about the fact that they're not, they, they don't, you know, they're still treating these women as criminals. I, I am going to say in the defense of the entire Green River Task Force, not necessarily just Dave Reichert, I my sense is that they did genuinely want to catch him and did genuinely care that women were getting murdered. Like I think Dave Riker, so I don't know how much we want to get into his background, but he was an evangelical Christian, mm-hmm. which I do think colored his view of a lot of things, including prostitution. Mm-hmm. The other people that I have seen interviewed and have read about, I don't know what their religious background is, but they didn't seem to have the same attitude that he did and were quite emotionally fucked up by this entire thing. So, and, and we're really offended that people thought that they didn't care. Right. And I know he was too, but like these women, I mean, they were treated like criminals. Like, of course, no one's going to come talk to them and no one's going to want to reach out to them if they're treated like they're worried about, you know, losing their livelihood and, and what they're doing is criminalized. But that, and I sound like I'm trying to be a, a SPD or King County Sheriff apologist, which I'm not trying right. to be. But that was the culture of the time. Yeah, no, that they totally. that they were criminals. Totally, I, to- I and totally. So it's agree. like, yeah. I don't know. I I do tend to be sympathetic to the cops to some extent because I think they fucked up, but they also did not have the pieces that we have. So like right. we talked about it's earlier, true. like it's at true. this point, so we're talking the fall of '82. I think they only knew, I, I think they had only found the bodies of like six people mm-hmm. at this point. And so they didn't, they knew they had a serial killer probably, but all the other murders that were happening, they didn't know about. And so by the time they figured that out, years had already gone by. Right. And so this case, I think at the time and in retrospect, it was easy to kind of say like, oh, those fucking cops aren't doing anything. I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, but... So I don't think it was as cut and dry as, oh, they have all these bodies and all of these crime scenes and they're just kind of not putting the pieces together because they didn't have the crime scenes. I don't know. I feel like the number of victims that were at the river, they should have... They should have done things differently, but then at that point, the killer changed where he was putting the bodies. And I I think that... And honestly, that, I think, if had he not done that, he would have been caught 
right. within a week. But well, because, <laughs> but be, oh God, seriously, who knows? But because he did, and because he was putting bodies in places where they weren't found for years, mm-hmm. if ever, in mm-hmm. some cases, there was so little evidence left by the time they were found. Right. That, and, and you had that massive lag between when the people went missing and when the body and when was they were found, found. Yeah, which is is fucked up, and I think really did do a lot for the case or hurt the case a lot because we talk about like 1983. 1983 is, like, the darkest fucking year because mm-hmm. so many people were killed and almost no bodies were found. Right. So it was, like, all of these people are being murdered, but, like, nobody knows it. Right. And that, to me, that's the scariest fucking thing. Totally scary. And, they, I mean, Dave Riker talks about that, too. Like, we don't know if it's it seemed like the like, killing had yeah. stopped. And that's why that was another reason why they felt like Melvin Foster was a viable suspect because they were they watching him. him. Under, yeah, yep. surveillance. No bodies were turning up. Yep. He wasn't killing anyone, and they're like, oh, sweet. Like, this is probably Problem the guy. solved. Right. And so I know that, like, when you're in it, it's hard, and we do have the benefit of, like, a totally, like, later perspective. But I think that Bob Keppel did pick up on this oh, attitude. Oh, that, I do. You know, I think you're that right. could have... And the killer, ultimately, which we'll talk about in the next episode, the killer even, like, said that as one of the reasons why he felt like he was so successful was that... The prostitutes didn't want to learn. They don't care. They didn't want to listen to these people. They the, the women didn't feel comfortable going to the cops because the cops didn't make them feel comfortable going there, and so it kind of gave him the opportunity to continue taking advantage of these group of people. But have you so. read or seen much about Faye Brooks? No. Okay, so Faye Brooks was the. I don't know what her role was in the Green River Killer investigation, but she was part of the sex crimes unit. She was, And she became one of the main people working on the Green River investigation. And she's very sympathetic. Anytime I've ever read anything about her or seen her in anything, because she was, like, the victim of sexual violence herself. Right, And she's a woman and she's black, which I think it makes a difference. Right. I just think it does. And she, I think had a very different attitude towards the prostitutes than Dave Riker. Right. She did. They had, she, she was a trusted person that they could go to. Yeah. So I think, I think Dave Riker is coloring our view of the cops in general mm-hmm. in a very negative way. Right. Because really, genuinely, everyone else I've seen interviewed or right. read about has been very, was very invested and was very emotionally distraught about, right. The fact that there was all these murders and that they didn't stop them. Yeah. Which I think would, that would fuck you up. I mean, talking about fucking, right. you know, we talk about working at Foster. It's like, oh, we're so traumatized. But right. it's like, can you fucking imagine? No, no. I like literally am traumatized though. Like, I think I have PTSD. Okay. And I'm not trying to be, and I'm not trying to be, a, I'm not trying to be a dick. And Girl. I know that's not a dickish, but it's not the same thing as fucking finding no, a dead I'm body. Not, and that's what I'm saying is that if I'm this traumatized, <laughs> I can only imagine how traumatized those people are. Because I am just like, you know, ruining kids' futures, whatever. You These are people, not. You are fucking not. <laughs> you didn't you never ruined anyone's future. Deaths. Like that's a big fucking deal. Yeah. So yeah. So that would be horrifying. Dave Riker aside, I, I do have sympathy for for the police. I mean, I think they fucked up, but I also think who doesn't? Yeah. Dave Reichert's hair also went gray. Um, Qu- quickly. And it, and it was like he was president. It's just like he aged. Yeah. <laughs> but his eyebrows didn't. That's a thing. 
So it was, like, really weird that his hair just went gray. So clearly he also experienced some kind of trauma or something. Oh, I think he did. I mean, as much as I think he fucked up this investigation, I also do find him a somewhat sympathetic figure. Mm. Well, in the sense that I think he's... All right, I'm just going to say this. I think if you're deeply religious in an evangelical, fundamental kind of way, you have limited critical thinking skills and you you have a very limited worldview. I think that's part of, I mean, really, I think they've done studies that people who tend towards being really religious have a very particular way that their brain works and they don't like a lot of gray area. They like very black, white, binary kind of Uh things. And I don't think that would make you a good police officer. So I think Dave Reichert has a very clear view of the world that I think does not allow him to see the complexities of things. Oh, totally. And that's something that I think we'll talk about a little bit later. That is the thing that shines through the most in this book, is that everything is completely black and white, it's good or evil, and he's on the side of good. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't feel the pain right. of, of these people. I mean, because he does talk about this, like becoming having relationships with families and victims and being really upset about, you know, their experiences, and I don't know. So I, I don't think he's, like, a fucking heartless sociopath. I, I think, I think he does feel ab- bad about a lot of the things that happen. I just don't think he has the capacity to take responsibility for his yeah. role, which is what we were talking about. Right. Today. It's hard for me to concede this because I hate him. <laughs> but I'll say okay for now. Okay for now. Okay. okay. <laughs> we'll move on because we got on a major Dave Riker <laughs> tangent. Okay, so let's just say 83 was a fallow period in the investigation, like we said. So lots, lots of people were murdered, but the bodies were not found. Right. And so they didn't know. There was a lot of critical eye to the police department and like, what are you doing kind of thing. Okay, so... we get to February of 1984. February of 1984. (gasps) um, And Anne Rule, this is actually in the Anne Rule book, so is it the Seattle Times gets a letter? Yes. But it was addressed to the Seattle Post Intelligencer, yes. which is a newspaper that no longer exists, but it used to be, it was actually the better of the two papers. I agree. The PI was better. Yeah. So it used to be back in the day, it was the Seattle Times, the Seattle PI, and just, we're just gonna, I just wanna do a little Seattle history here. The PI came out in the morning, the Times came out in the afternoon. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so if you got the PI, it would actually come to your house in the morning. If you got the Times, I think it came at like five o'clock. Oh, crazy. In the evening. So we always got the PI because my parents like to have the paper in the morning. Yeah. And then the Sunday edition was both papers got together and they co-did the Sunday paper. Do you remember that? That is like really harmonious. It was. It was lovely. And then for, but the Times was always a little bit more corporate and a little more conservative. Yeah. The PI was a little more progressive. Yeah, that's and so true. The, the Times still exists. The PI became online and Man, now I think doesn't exist at all. Isn't that like the fucking way that the world works too? Yeah. The good things disappear. <laughs> Also, the movie The Ring, Naomi Watts' character works for the PI. That's true. Yeah, so that's kind of cool. Oh my god. So anyway, so this letter was sent, it arrived at the Times, but was addressed to the Post-Intelligencer. Wait, yeah, it said, it had the Post-Intelligencer's name, but he put the... Times address. Yeah, exactly. So this is is Seattle minutia. Yeah. Uh, So this very strange letter arrives, and it's sort of a bunch of it's like a numbered list mm-hmm. but it's all like run on sentences and there are no spaces between the letters that, that's what i mean yeah, yeah. Like they just it's all the words run together yeah and so they had to figure out what it said 
we have it here, which should we read it? I think we should read it. Okay, so we should read, this is it. So this is from Green River Running Red by Anne Rule. This is the letter, and I'm going to look, I'm going to have to find the, she has the actual, what it looked like originally, but I'm going to see if I can find her translation of it. So if you want to see the actual text, you have to look in her book because I'm going to need to read her translation to have mm-hmm. it make any sense. Mm-hmm. What you need to know about the Green River Man, don't throw away. One, first one broken or dislocated arm. Why? Two, one black in river had a stone in the vagina. Why? Three, why some in river, some above ground, some underground? Four, insurance, who got it? Five, who stood to gain by their deaths? Six, truck is out of state. Father had painted it or it's in the river. Seven, some had fingernails cut off. Eight, he had sex after they were dead. He smokes. Nine, he chews gum. Ten, there is a chance the first one blackmailed him. Eleven, you work for me or nobody. Whoa. 12. I think he changed his MO. Businessman or salesman? 13. Car and motel reservation. 14. Man seen carrying big luggage out of motel. It was heavy and he needed help. Keys and ID are at road 18. Oh, God. 15. Where so close some ring in miscellaneous. 16. Out of state cop. 17. I don't kill in no one area. Look in and outside. 18. One had old scars. 19. Mom, uh, Maple Valley had red wine Lombrusco. Some fish dumped there. (gasps) Carol Christensen. Yep. 20. Any drugs or selling? 21. Head found. Who found it? Where's the rest? 22. When did they die? Day or night? 23. What tore their mouths or is it a trick? 24, why take some clothes and leave the rest? 25, the killer wears at least one ring. 26, real estate man is one man. 27, long haul truck driver last seen with one. 28, some had rope marks on neck and hands. 29, one black and river had odor on only. Odor? This is translated by Anne Rule, so this might not be right. 30, all strangled but with different methods. 31, one black and river had worked for Metro. 32, most had pimps bedding them. 33, escort modeling forced them uh, of fear of death. 34, maybe pimp had or got back at them. 34, who finds the bones? What are they there for? 35, man with gun or knife. 36, someone paid to kill one. The others are to hide it. 37, killed because of who they are, or is it because of what they are? 38, any dead different from the rest? Question mark. 39, it could be a man from Portland or someone who worked there. 40, what kind of man is this? And and then it says, there was a book left at Denny sign, not this, out of doors. It belongs to a cop. Okay, so that's... Sorry, that was long. I didn't realize how many it was. Whoa. So that was sent. That was... uh, And then that letter was sent to the FBI. The FBI's determination was that it was not from the killer. 
and it had nothing to do with the case, despite the fact that there were things in that letter that nobody should have known about except for the cops and the killer. So the rocks in the vagina and the cut fingernails. Yeah. And the fish, probably. I mean, was that released to the... I don't think it was. How would they... So so there we go. The FBI was like, nope, uh uh-uh, not related, don't you worry about it. And so I don't know what the cops did with this letter at that point, but as far... I mean, I think they did listen to the FBI. And so they were said, oh, okay, well, I guess we shouldn't worry about this anymore and put it aside. Later, when the killer was arrested, yes, he did write this. Yep. So yeah, this is, this was from the Green River Killer. And yeah. it's interesting because some of the stuff is true. Some of the stuff I think is not. And it's like deliberate, deliberate misguiding information. But given how apparently stupid the Green River Killer turned out to be, some of this stuff is does not seem like right. the work of a stupid person. Right. It really doesn't. Like, this seems much deeper right. and more thoughtful than I would guess that the Green River Killer was capable of writing. And that's another interesting thing, too, is, like, how a lot of times so many serial killers have, like, have the need to reach out oh, yeah. to the cops. Mm-hmm. I mean... Jeez, you think you'd do anything to just, like, be able to keep doing what you're doing and, like... Well, and if I'm not mistaken, the Green River Killer did contact the cops a couple other times, too. Really? Yeah. Including reporting... Like, what what was this thing? Like, he reported something stolen. I mean, so it wasn't about the Green River... Although I think he did contact contact them about the Green River Killer case a few times, but I also think he did something, like, reported something stolen at a wow. swap meet or something. And it's like, oh, you've got balls. Wow. So. Crazy. Like, drew attention to himself when he didn't have to. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So, that was that was 84. Oh, my gosh. All right. Well, we will get to the next suspect, whose name is Gary Ridgway. He first comes to the Green River Task Force Force's attention in May of 84, so Randy Mullinax, who was one of the main investigators yeah. in the task force, brings him in after he gets a tip from a prostitute named Rebecca Guai. There, yes, I okay. think I'm not sure, Gwai. but we'll go with that. Okay, so she said that in the fall of '82, so two years prior, she was picked up by a guy in a maroon pickup truck, and um, they agreed that she would give him a BJ for twenty bucks. He could not get an erection, though, and then said to her that she bit his penis and started, like, he put her in a chokehold and started, like, choking her. And she flipped out and was like, oh, my God, I think this might be, like, the killer because, you know, all these, like, deaths had just been publicized. Oh, my God. And she fought and was able to escape. Thank goodness. I don't know why she, like, waited so long to say anything. She was probably scared. But so because this event was so traumatic, I imagine, she remembered everything so distinctly, including that um, during the whole encounter, she was able to see his employee badge, and it was from the uh, Kenworth Truck Manufacturing Plant uh, in Renton. And during this whole time, Randy Mullinax gave her a series of pictures from the Johns who were arrested during a prostitution sting. And she picked out this man, Gary Ridgway. And so again, this was in the fall of, no, sorry, May of 84. 
we they didn't know this at the time, but we since know that this wasn't the first time that the police went and saw Gary Ridgway. They also went and saw him in 1983 after Marie Malvar's family and pimp went to the Des Moines police and said that they knew they found the house of the pickup truck. Which we talked about. Right, that Marie had last been seen. And so um, apparently the cop who went there had worked with Gary Ridgway in a grocery store in Des Moines growing up and just like was like, oh yeah, totally remember you. Like Gary Ridgway. Gary Ridgway was like, there's definitely no one in here. Like, I didn't do anything. And they were like, okay. But the task force, because this is like a common thing, everyone knows this, but, you know, police precincts obviously don't, they have like a pride thing where they don't share information often. And so there was no way that the Green River Task Force would have had access to that information. But at, at this point. point in time, wait, but he was, Gary Ridgway was also arrested, or not, not arrested, but stopped in 82 yes. with a prostitute who in ended up in the baseball up, field was oh who it ended up in the baseball field who ended up being a green river killer victim yeah. later or so suspected he, her body was never found right so um her so in 82 he was he was parked in a, in the baseball field that we had talked about previously that we've been to right the police officer just talked with him and noted that he was with a woman named Jennifer Kaufman and later on, Matt Haney, who's Carrie's boyfriend. Smoking hot. <laughs> That's my fucking boyfriend. Matt Haney, if you're listening, I'm not available, but I can, I can make myself available. So don't, don't you worry about that. So Carrie's boyfriend, Matt Haney, realized that, hey, wait a minute. Jennifer Kaufman is the alias of Kelly McGinnis, who was a Green River Killer victim, they think. They think her body has, to this day, not, been, not found, been found. Right. But she disappeared. Right. In 84, they gave Ridgway a polygraph test, and he passed with flying colors. And so they just figured, oh, well, this isn't the guy. It was later on in 86 when Matt Haney had, he put all these details together and went to Rikert and said, wait a minute. But it's it's even better than that and it's even better like once again the search for the green river killer does it so well so they got a computer so Mm -hmm. the green river task force they got fucking nothing this is yeah like 86 they've got nothing the murders have stopped at this point as far as they know right and somehow they get a computer and this was kind of in the early days of personal computing right and so it was a big deal for them to get one and tom jensen i believe ends up being the guy who inputs all the data, right. which is very unglamorous, but that's what he does. So yeah. He puts it on the data, and they the computer starts making connections between different events and connecting them to different mm-hmm. people. And so all of these things are being connected to Gary Ridgway. Mm-hmm. So they've got him being seen with Kelly K. Mag- Kelly K. McGinnis, mm-hmm. who was a Green, a Green River Killer victim. There was the Marie Malvar situation. Mm-hmm. There was the Paige Miley being approached yep. Yep. by Gary Ridgway. Uh, she and P.S. She picked out Ridgway immediately. Yeah. From a lineup of, you know, when she they gave a lineup of photos. And there was one other thing that, that was connected. He'd had the pickup truck with the white primer spot that had right. been reported a bunch of times. So this is the other thing that Matt Haney found. Matt Haney was looking through and he was like, hey, wait a minute. He noticed that Ridgway 
had been on strike for three weeks. That's in right. 1983. Okay, so I'm sorry, this was in 1986. That was way too confusing. But he found, oh, Gary Ridgway had been on strike. The Kenworth people had been on strike. And during that three-week period, that was when the most victims went missing back-to-back. Yes. So and he was like, hey, wait Not a, a single person was taken when Gary Ridgway was at work. Right. So every it single time, all during 100% of the time that somebody was taken, he was either off work or had called in sick. Right. So at that point, so the computer you know, God bless the computer, made all those connections. Right. Because Matt Haney, I think, he had not been on the case since the beginning. And so he was coming in somewhat fresh. Right. So he was looking at all this. He was like, well, wait a second. Let's take a look at this guy again. Right. Even though he passed a polygraph, Dave Reichert said, let's forget it. He passed a polygraph. Right. We don't want to look at him. 87. They, it was, it was 80, 87. It's 80s. Okay. I'm pretty sure it's 87. So in 87, they took his truck. They went and searched his house. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, it... Revealed nothing. They came, they didn't yeah. have any evidence. They found no evidence. And I think he passed another polygraph test at that point. Or it was inconclusive. Or I don't something. know if he, I don't know yeah. if either one of them actually actually did he really pass with flying colors or was it inconclusive? Um, I thought. I mean, I don't know if he. If they, I mean, I think they just were like, oh yeah, he passed. He didn't flunk it. He didn't flunk it. But yeah, they found no hard evidence to connect him to anything. Right. And then so the other problem, I think. There's so many connections here where you're like, Come how on. could you ever not see that? But what Reichert says, what his reasoning was, is that with Melvin Foster, there was so much publicity that he was really wary to put that information out there again. Yeah. Media kept getting hold of all of these suspects and then would like blast their name out constantly. And, you know, they ended up not being the killer and so he said he was very wary of like putting any label onto someone which is legit but then after this they do it two more times right so it that doesn't i it's it's strange i don't i don't understand it i don't know what what his reasoning is i will say though that without any hard evidence there's not much they could have done really there, there's there's not. so much evidence. But there's not. It's all just, oh, we saw you with a prostitute. And at this point, he had admitted that, yeah, I go see prostitutes. So, I mean, really, I think had, seriously, yeah. had they taken him, had they made, had they actually accused him and taken him to trial at that point, I'm not sure he would have been convicted. And the then. The Malvar thing. I mean, come on. But they have no hard evidence. All they have is her fucking pimp who says, oh, I saw her with that in that truck. You know, know that's not enough. I know. So to to their defense, I will say that it was not enough. Okay. It, I don't think it was enough to convict him. So, but what so, they do in 1987 is they do take a saliva sample. They do. Yep. So that is the one thing they do, which was very wise of them. Yep. Because even though DNA testing didn't really exist at the time, they had right. an idea that it may in the future. Right. So they took which a... Which is great. Yeah. Which is wonderful. So they took a saliva sample. So that's Gary Ridgway. They put him on the back burner. I'm going to rewind a little bit because in 84, they also did something that was interesting. Bob Keppel and Reichert teamed up. Oh, 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 oh. How do we skip this? <laughs> Fuck yeah. So uh, Bundy was sending them letters like, hey, y'all, uh, I'll totally help you out. So wait, well, we got to back up even further. So Ted Bundy, who we've discussed, was on death row yes, in, in Florida, Florida because he had escaped from prison Oh my god, so twice many times? and had managed to get all the way to Florida and then had murdered a whole bunch of people. So it was on death row in Florida yeah. for killing a, a couple of different people. 
So anyway, so yes, now now go. So Bob Capel and Riker team up, shockingly. Never think that they would. And they go fly to Florida to meet with Bundy. Who says that he has insight into who right. the river man, which is what he called the Green River Killer, is. Right. Who he was. Exactly. And Riker says that... It, like, wasn't actually that helpful at all. Well, there's a whole book written about it by Bob Keppel yeah. called Riverman. Oh, I've read it. Oh, I own it. It's really long, but there are some parts of this book that are fucking scary. So it's, they talk about, it's very similar to Green River Killer discovering a whole bunch of the victims' bodies on Tiger Mountain. Or does that sound right? Oh, yeah. Over in the Cascades. That it's Tiger Mountain. And it's so fucking scary. I mean, because really? and and, Bob Keppel talks about what it was like, and it's very similar mm. to the Green River Killer uh, body recovery, except they didn't know any. Like, once they had gotten to the Green River Killer body recovery, they kind of knew what they were doing, yeah. but it, with Ted Bundy, they had no clue what they were doing, so they were just, like, wandering around, like, oh, trying God. to recover bones, and, like, like, they didn't... stepping on skulls. Oh, God. So they talk about that, and they talk about the fucking Lake Sammamish thing, which is Ugh, so scary, where he got two victims in one day. Oh, I know that scares me. Oh, God, it's so scary. Yeah, so, but Ted Bundy loved to yank people's chain. He and did. He and ch- that's it was his favorite thing. Right, so. and that's what Riker ultimately felt like at first. Here's a suggestion. It's <laughs> my favorite thing ever. Uh, I laughed out loud. Bundy said that the cops should have, uh, like, a snuff film festival. Mm, mm, mm. <laughs> Yes, and then and then like 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 <laughs> keep track of the cars that go into yeah. the parking lot and yeah. like record who goes. Yes, um, which I thought was like so a snuff funny. Film a festival, snuff film festival, or it wasn't just, but it was like there was also just like horror movies. It wasn't yeah. just snuff films. But he said specifically a snuff film he festival, did. Mm-hmm. which made me really laugh because oh my god, could you imagine? The fucking snuff films. Like, which snuff film should we choose to screen at our festival? <laughs> which one will the award oh go to? Oh, my God. That's so fucked up. Silence of the Lambs was based on this. Yeah. What I the mean, this, this whole idea of going to an imprisoned serial killer right, to find, to find a, a free serial killer. Yeah, that's totally what this was based on. It's just crazy. So it's, it's a very enticing concept yeah. but here's the thing about ted bundy which i i do think we need to talk about him more in detail he has this reputation of being like i said like hannibal lecter so this yeah. total genius read interviews with him or watch interviews with him i don't see it i don't oh, think he's that yeah. smart so he's boring That's he the is thing. he's so just boring. after a while i'm like dude come on he has a really um, metered way of speaking he does i don't like and it. he's obviously full of shit yeah so anyway, yeah, they don't get much out of this. It's kind of like the John Douglas thing. It's like, oh, right. he's going to be like this, and he's going to do these kinds of things. Right. The only thing that I think he said that was very true was that he was going to be a necrophile. Yes. Which did end up being true. It is true. It was funny because Reichert talks about when, as they were talking, like, Bundy comes in and he's all, like, sad looking and, like, pale. And then, like, as they're talking more and more about, like, the gruesome things that happen, he, like, starts to get, like, really animated and excited. And, like, by the end was, like, just really, like, chipper. Like, very excited. This was at the very end of his life, right before he was executed. So Yeah. Good good job. Made him feel better at the end of his life. But it was also, he was a necrophile. So so it's, like, how much did he really have insight and how much was he just talking about himself? I know, exactly. So it... It, exactly. At the end of the day, it's it's not as 
interesting as it should be. Right. But they did make a good movie about it, which I think is actually called The Riverman. Man. But Carrie Elwes, oh my god, fucking what's his butt from The Princess Bride, um, really Wesley. Cute. He pl- a- but he plays um, Ted Bundy. Oh my god, I had a huge crush on him when I was a kid. Totally, but he's really god. good. I reckon the movie sucks, but he's actually really good. The next suspect that we have is Bill McLean. So Bill McLean was, I feel like in the search for the Green River Killer, there is a lot devoted to him. There is. The FBI identified him as a possible suspect. Um, it was not due to the efforts of the Green River Task Force at all. Reichert was shocked because apparently in 86, the the sheriff came out and was like, 86 is going to be our year. We've got a promising new suspect. And Reichert's like, we do? The FBI is like, hey, it's this guy, Bill McLean, who's a 52-year-old construction worker and clearly a fucking piece of shit because he's a fur trapper. So any human that would like love to just trap and kill poor little defenseless animals is a piece of shit, and he should go to jail anyway. So, do, do you love how rural it used to be around here? Yeah, that in he 1982, lived in Des Moines. Yeah, no, and in Riverton. Well, but that he could like go fur trapping somewhat around here, I know, and just like weird. yeah, totally, just catch like bee. I don't know beavers. What would he catch? I don't know, but whatever he caught, it's wrong. It is, but I don't know. stupid piece of shit. I wish he would have got fucking. Sent to jail. <laughs> anyway. Morgan is more upset about the fur trapper than about the actual Green River Killer. No, I am. Oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, this, the greatest part about Bill McLean, this is so great. FBI has this idea and they're like, guess what, you guys? We're going to set up this fake interrogation. We're going to take him and his wife to make it shocking and surprising. We're going to bring him to this room where there's like maps up on the wall. Oh, yeah. And there's a poster right. that has like, you know, those like red strings that go to like the victims that connect him. We're going to have the rocks from the vaginas. We're going to have all these evidence binders that have his name on it because we're going to show him. Guess what, bitch? We know it's you. So they do all this. The wife is just really annoyed. She's like, um, I have to, like, I have this errand to run. Can you just follow me and then take me in? And she's, like, pissed the whole time. And then he comes in and is, like, not moved at all. But same thing with, like, Melvin fucking Foster. What ends up happening is Bill McLean's um, neighbors call the media The media descends on his house. They're, like, doing interviews. They see the cops taking out, like, boxes full of evidence. Guess what? Not the killer. Not the Green River Killer. So they published this dude's fucking name. Blasted it all over the media. Yep. Yep. And now this man's life has been completely changed. So this was just like another huge blow to the Green Green River Task Force's credibility. And I think at this time, that's when, like, all the cartoons started coming out. Yeah. The Green River Task Farce. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, and they're, like, making fun. We'll post the the cartoons. They're hilarious. The f- really crazy thing is that when they picked Bill McLean up, he said to them, what took you so long? And so they thought for sure, they were oh, like, my God, oh, this is our dude. we got him. This but is him. What he meant was that they had been watching him for so long, and, and he, he knew. knew it. And he was like, guys, <laughs> come on. So he's actually, I find him kind of entertaining reading about him. Like, he clearly... Like Melvin Foster clearly is somewhat smart and has a sense of humor, and it's just like, oh, give me a fucking break. I know. But what's not clear to me is why they thought it was him to begin with. I don't remember what their reasoning was. I they didn't because he didn't. It here because they, he had no history. 
frequenting prostitutes. Like, right. he no history of that at all. And, like, really? You think your killer is going to be somebody who doesn't go to prostitutes? Like, that's crazy. I think the FBI, they thought, oh, like, let's keep our... This is our profile. He's an outdoorsman. Exactly. You that's know, why he, the profile yeah. is... Right. Bullshit. So it somehow... Oh, I think someone had get, given them a tip that he talked about killing prostitutes or something. Like, maybe oh. he was joking or I don't know. But, I mean, this is what we're dealing with at this point is, like, that's what it takes to get you right. to be a suspect. Right. A, a viable, a major suspect. Yeah. There's really only four major suspects. Yeah. And he's the third. The third major yeah. suspect. After this, this is Dave Riker's fucking rise to fame. He starts going on television shows. Uh-huh. He starts becoming, like, the Hollywood face of, like, the task force. My favorite thing from Chasing the Devil with Sheriff Dave Riker is he describes going on the Sally Jesse Raphael show, which was my favorite show, P.S. Mm. I loved Sally no, Jesse Raphael. No, 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 Raphael. no. I liked Ricky Lake. Okay, I liked Ricky Lake, but Ricky Lake would always be... T- she was, like, too... She was super trashy. Uh, no, I know, but, like, she was really, like, understanding, and I just kind of wanted someone who was going to be, like, hard. And was Sally, Sally Jesse Raphael hard? She was a little bit. I think she would, like, put her foot down about shit. She would, like, take a no-nonsense stance. Really? Maybe. That's what I hope. I think Montel took a no-nonsense oh stance. Montel. <laughs> Montel is oh, my favorite. For, for our younger viewers who will not remember these Montel. shows, these were talk shows from the 90s, and they were... It's all I watched. They were sort of the less trashy versions of of um, Jerry Springer. Oh my god, that's so funny because that's how Dave Riker describes it too. Yeah, it was like Oprah was like the gold standard oh, yeah. of the day, of like the daytime talk show, and these these shows were kind of in the middle. Yeah, and then Jerry Springer was the opposite of Oprah. So yes. okay, so Dave Riker's on Sally Jesse Raphael. Yes. Is he talking about? He is, and they right? and or, they also bring on um, they also bring on like families of women who had been killed in other instances, and they brought in. I think Tracy Winston's mom went. She was a very outspoken, vocal um, family member, which rightfully so. Apparently, there was like this guy on there that was I don't know yelling at the family or something. And he talks about that at the end of the show, he was like so mad. And at the end of the show, Sally Jesse Raphael was going around shaking hands and he grabbed her hand and pulled her close and said, I will never go on your show again. That was bullshit. And just whispered that in her ear. And like, he, I know he feels so fucking vindicated about it. (sighs) So anyway, Dave Riker ends up going up on all these shows, right? He becomes like the poster boy. And then we get to this thing called Manhunt live which on our website i have posted the only (gasps) chunk of it that i've ever been able to find which is like 20 (gasps) minutes of it yes it was so it was it was done in 1988 and it was at the time was kind of a new thing it was like kind of a documentary but also there was some like (laughs) reenactments it was kind of like unsolved mysteries but i think it was before unsolved mysteries was a show oh shit so it was it was this idea that if they could do a show publicizing the case nationwide that they would get tips and so I've always wanted to see the whole thing I've never seen it and apparently it worked way too well and they got like a hundred (laughs) thousand phone calls they got like way too many phone calls they couldn't deal with it and they only like only 10,000 people actually ended up getting through and talking to somebody they got no 
helpful tips from it at all because they already had the real Green River Killer. They already right. knew. They already had him in as as a suspect at this point. So they kind of didn't really need and more suspects, but they did get a few tips about this one guy. Yep. Who is our fourth and final real suspect in the case who right. is William Stevens William from Spokane yes. from Washington so like this dude the, when they people called in they talked about how he would like regularly disguise himself as a police officer and apparently that was one of the things on like the FBI profile yeah or like on some profile that someone created you know, oh, maybe it will be that. And he also fit the profile in that he was ex-military and had above-average intelligence. He had a doctorate in psychology. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes you above-average Well, and he was a lawyer. Or yeah. he was in law school. He was in law school, right. So the other thing that they found was that he lived, like, within a mile of the Tigard, Oregon dump site. And well, so he like, had a... No, he didn't live there. He had a rental house oh, over really? there. He lived in Spokane. Oh, he but he owned a house that, okay. yeah. Okay. And that is pretty weird. It is super weird. That's strange. That's a really weird coincidence. Okay, so, like, they go, they find him in Spokane, they go to his apartment, and in there they find, like, a shit ton of guns, a shit ton of pornography, and a shit ton of, like, police gear. So they're like, ugh, this dude's weird. Yuck. Which he was. He was so... Super weird. There like was they, probably semen all over everything. Oh, like, if you oh. put a fucking black light in there, uh, it would have been a nightmare. So oh he God. was a he was a fucking creeper. Yeah. And they brought him in, and I think I think he was an official suspect. And there was there was nothing. There was no, nothing to tie him to the Green nope. River Killer. Nothing. Victims at all. No. And then when he, when they investigated when they were like interrogating him, he refused to speak to them. He was being very evasive. He demanded a lawyer, so they dug into, like, his personal life and talked to his friends, and his friends had confirmed that he had, like, a fascination with prostitutes. So they were like, oh, maybe he's the guy. This was another situation where the press also identified him. Yeah. What in the hell? I don't know. I don't feel like that happens anymore. I know. It's a different fucking time, though, obviously. Right. It's just crazy. So they, I mean, so anyway, if you ever... If you read the graphic novel by Tom Jensen's son, I can't, seriously, the name is escaping me, but this instance is in there. Yeah. So this guy being brought in for questioning and just being a total dick. Yeah. And being, and and they all know that it's not him. Like, as soon as they have the first interview with him, they're like, fuck, that's not him. Definitely not him. Which, that graphic novel is really good. You should It is really good. It's super good. It's a quick read. Yeah. But it's, it's good. It's interesting. Because it's actually from the perspective of a detective who's not a complete dickhead. <laughs> I mean, he actually seems humble yeah. and introspective. Right. And, and yeah. again, he's the only one. He was literally the only person on the well, Green And this is what caused that. So anyway, so right. this, this debacle happens. And at this point in time, the investigation had been going on for, what, six years, seven years yep. at this point. And they were like, all right, that's it. We're fucking done. We're done. And they shut that shit and down. And P.S., they had spent $15 million. To do nothing. a lot of nothing. I mean, yeah, it wasn't nothing, but to do but very little. Kind, I mean, sort of. And so at the at, in 1989, they shut the Green River Task Force down. Right. And they this one detective, the guy with the computer... They said, hey, do you want to keep doing this? And right. he said, yeah. So he was all alone with this computer and the entire case for 10 years. Oh, 
Like, that's so, like, kind of beautiful and tragic. Oh like, God, I find so his dedication. story lovely yeah. that he's just, like, left alone with this. And he still, like, answers the phone calls. He's still, like, people still, like, submit tips and stuff. And he's following up on all those leads. Yeah. Just by himself. By him fucking self. That, like, was the job of literally of, like, so many other people before. Yeah. So fucking Dave Reichert, who just, like, sucks his own dick for... I don't know, 20 years about the Green River Killer and how he caught this person and whatever. It's like, fuck you. Right. Because Dave Reichert moves on to become King County Sheriff. Right. And that's the thing. He he talks about, there's a lovely vignette in um, Chasing the Devil where he's talking about there's a run for sheriff and he doesn't want to be sheriff, but everyone around him says, Dave, like it or not, you're going to be the next sheriff. And then he just became the next sheriff. It's like, Give what me the a fuck? fucking break. And then he's like, I was the first one to start the investigation and I saw it through until it was put in mothballs. And I want to be like, bitch, no, you didn't. Because Tom Jensen's the only one who kept it alive after that. Yeah, you did not. No. So if anyone's listening, through. Tom Jensen is our hero yeah. of this story, yes. not Dave Riker. No, even though Dave Riker feels like he's the yeah. hero. Yeah, so let's just like clear that up. Yeah. This is what I think. I think then we hit like the fallow period of the 90s where shit was happening, but we don't, we didn't know the shit that was happening. But I just want to talk about the part that makes me most angry. I need to come back to this, okay? Go. This motherfucker had no fucking, he has like such a typical like white man slash cop mentality about everything. So, okay. And you read this, you can attest to this, in the first, what is it, first ten pages? It may not even be ten, it may be five. He immediately, completely insults the victim's family. So he He talks about going to notify Deb Bonner's mom about her death. And these are his words. These are literally the things that he says. When we sat down and Mrs. Shirley Bonner heard me say her daughter had been murdered... Tears filled her eyes and trickled down her cheeks. You might say this woman had never been equipped to raise a child. And you might be right. Who the fuck is this guy? Can you imagine your daughter is killed and then 30 years later, the cop who investigates it writes a book about her murder and describes you in that way? Right. Can you, you imagine what that would feel like? never equipped to raise a child. Oh my god, it I makes me so angry. He can think that all he wants, but to fucking put it in print, right. he's, yeah. Right. That's shitty. So another thing that, like, really drove me crazy, um, I, I, he's just so, like, tone deaf. So he um, says, a high percentage of prostitutes were molested as girls, many by family members. How else does a child of 15 or 16 feel so comfortable ignoring every taboo and choosing to use sex to get what she wants? Oh, I read. I remember reading that. That's also in the first, like, I don't know, thirty pages. Like, what is that? That really? is so horribly offensive. That is the most offensive thing I've probably read in like ever. It goes from oh, you're you're being sexually abused to you're using sex to get what you to want. get what you want. Excuse me. Oh, really? What? How is being a prostitute using sex to get what you want? At all. You're getting money, I guess. Sorta, but you're not using sex to get what you want. Oh my god! So like, I just feel like he is so completely does not understand at all. No, and he's a fucking so sexist. There's a part where he talks about 
later on, Faye Brooks, who was part of the task force and who he describes in like really nice terms, like worthy of respect and like totally understood what was going on and like was, you know, a trusted member of the team. And um, so this is what he says. This is after he left the task force. He ends up going to the Burien precinct. Mm. Burien. And that Faye had become the first female lieutenant. So that means that she had a rank higher than his now. And these are this. I'm reading this from the book. I didn't need the extra challenge to my ego that would come from working for a person I had trained and led as a detective. Faye, I said, this is only going to work one way. Yes, she said. It will only work if we're partners, not if you see yourself as my boss. Like, motherfucker, she is your boss. And it's like that whole, like, can't can't be, like, second to a woman sort of thing. And you made a good point. If, like, if that was a man, they wouldn't be having Mm-mm. that conversation. Oh, no. Mm-mm. He would respect the rank of like, a man. this dude is just such a fucker. Like, I hate him. So... He ended up becoming sheriff, and then he ended Dead. up getting elected into the House of Representatives. Yeah. He is currently the representative for, I think, Bellevue? It's East Side, that, yeah, that, is East that Side. district. Yeah, or Kirkland or something. Some East Side district, yeah. some wealthy white district. So he's resigning. Yeah. Or he's not going to run again after Thank God. What, 2018. But if you hear this in the meantime, feel free to contact him. He's a Republican. So fe- oh, feel, free, Republican. feel free to contact him. Of course he's a Republican. About his support of Donald Trump, his support of the repealing of Obamacare, his support of horrible environmental policies. Just feel free yeah. to contact him about any of those fucking things. I'm sure he'd really appreciate it. Because this is the other thing that this book really brought out. So it really showed how flexible Dave Reichert is because he just sucks his dick the entire time. It and also now sucks Donald Trump's dick. So he's time. also yeah. comfortable with that. Yes, yeah. yeah. Really, I feel like this book is just him blaming every single other person other than himself. So he blames victims' families. He blames the his superiors. He blames the public. He blames the media. He blames the victims. I mean, he Pretty blames much. the other yeah. the other people in the police force. It's like he this book is literally about how everyone else is culpable in this but him. And this it is outrageous. So the Green River Killer in case it's not clear was somebody who the police encountered in 1982. Right. They knew about this guy from the very beginning yet. Right. Somehow, Dave Riker refuses to take responsibility for the fact that they did not catch this guy for 19 years. Right. Despite the fact that he calls himself the lead detective on the case, even though other people have made it clear that no, 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 he wasn't really the lead detective. He right. calls himself the lead detective. Oh, he, no, he's, he literally says that I was the leader that the other detectives were watching. Yeah. So if that's true, then he should take responsibility for the fact that right. they did not catch this guy for 19 years. Right. And, and like I said, there's it's not total negligence on their part either. It was more complicated than that. But if you're going to be in charge, you have to take responsibility for the fact that you allowed a serial killer to exist pretty much unfettered in the general, you know, your general area for as long, pretty much as long as he wanted yep. to be active. Absolutely. By the time he was caught, he was in his 50s. Yep. 
But which means he any, wasn't very active. Any kind of blow to Dave Reichert's ego can't handle is like not accepted. The Bob Keppel bringing in the FBI, he gets upset when parents are critical of him to the media. He gets upset when people make cartoons and mentions it like years later after they've so they'll write they did the cartoon in like the eighties and he'll men- he mentioned it twenty years later. When they made a statement. I mean, like, when he made a statement after catching the Green River Killer. Yeah. It's outrageous how this guy holds on to slights and then, like, keeps these grudges completely fueled. I mean, it, I never would have I never would have believed it before I read this book. I'm, it's, and it's, I'm really it's glad you read it. I, I, don't think, I don't think our view of the investigation would be as uh, well-rounded if you had not read... <laughs> I mean, I did. I read it with a critical eye. Though. You did. <laughs> you know, what's funny is when this, when the Green River Killer was first caught in two thousand and one. I actually, because I had just finished the search for the Green River Killer, which at that time was the only book about the Green River Killer. What it was? All yeah. the other ones have been written since yep. then. And I was, I was very sympathetic towards Dave Reichert. And when he ran for Congress, I was even. I mean, I wouldn't have voted for him, right? But I still was like, oh, that's a good guy. So he he was very um, successful in crafting his image because oh, I totally fell for it. And I'm at that time I was more well read than the average person. Now I'm more well read than like anybody, pretty much. <laughs> but at the time I was sort of just more than average. And I was, I was like, yeah, I was thinking about that. I mean, when he talks about his run for sheriff and he talks about his run for Congress, uh, I mean, total name recognition. Like he had yeah. it one hundred percent. And it was positive name recognition because right. he had caught a serial killer right. and had been very emotional about it. Right. I mean, people love that shit. They do. They just eat it up. Eat it up. But this guy is a, like, first-class fucking asshole. So, toxic masculinity. Yep. Dave Riker. I yeah. think we can pretty much say completely. that... Completely. One and the same. And I really do feel like it completely hampered this investigation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The effects of which we'll get into in the next episode. All right, this was a long one. It but, was. Thanks but, for bearing with us. And yeah. it's all cop shit, so, you know. Yeah. Mm. But. Uh, it, it'll be good next time, though. It's going it to totally get. It will. Interesting. Oh my God, so good. Just wait. <laughs> so juicy. We are going to spill that hot tea. Spill that hot tea. I love mm. that. Mm. All right. Okay, thanks for listening. See ya.